It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Dravecki gives him a look. Here's the pitch to the plate, and it goes all the way to the screen. Dravecki falls down and grabs his left shoulder, and he is hurting. Dravecki is hurt badly. It's one of the most heart-wrenching moments in sports history. It came only a handful of days after Dave Dravecki's triumphant return to the game after being diagnosed with cancer. Of course, this ended up being the final pitch he would ever throw. But it certainly wasn't the end for Dravecki, who has become a beacon of hope for so many. His story is incredible, and he shares portions of it he's never shared before. We go inside Dave Dravecki's Giant Moments now. Now, now. This is Inside Giant Moments. Presented by T-Mobile, our franchise has countless memorable, iconic moments. Join Mark Willard as he connects with our former players who lived these moments to relive the emotions, the stories, and the joy. Dave Dravecki joins the Inside Giant Moments podcast. And uh, Dave, I, I, I can't wait for this. Pretty exciting to have you. Thank you so much for doing it. How are you? Uh, doing good. Uh, thank you for having me on. I look forward to um, hopefully being able to remember looking back <laughs> this incredible <laughs> journey that we've been on. I mean, that's the word, right? It's going to be a really uh, emotional journey, I think, to uh, to have you walk us through this. You know, the first thing I wanted to ask you, because uh, we don't always get to control in life what we're remembered for. And, and you are a darn good pitcher. Uh, but I think especially when Giants fans think Dave Dravecki, uh, we think of the story, the inspiration, and, and, of course, what happened to you physically. How does that make you feel? Uh, you know, actually, to be honest with you, I I can't tell you how much um, – I, I don't know how to say this um, – how grateful I am. Uh, you know, it's, it's what's at the core of what most of us experience in life. And and so the fact that I've been able to share this story over the last almost 30 years now, um, and because of the cancer, because of the things that happened around the cancer, being a baseball player, um, I don't know that I'd go back and, and, and change any of that. So uh, the fact that, you know, well, quite frankly, I, I mean, I guess I was an okay pitcher, but you know, the the story around the story around uh, the journey with cancer. For that being alive all these years and having the opportunity to um, encourage people in the same way that we were encouraged um, is the greater gift. Um, it's okay that, um, you know, that people don't look at me as uh, um, a left-hander that, you know, like to break bats with my cut fastball. That's okay. <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, even even diving in, uh, in in sort of getting ready to talk to you, uh, there were some numbers that kind of jumped off the page. I'm like, wow, man, this guy. And, and, you know, you look at your San Diego career, for example, before you joined the Giants. 
Uh, you're, you're cruising along, I think, year six in your major league career. You've got an ERA right around three. You're, you're doing it, man. And I wondered, is there even a hint at that point in your life of any physical issues with your arm whatsoever? No. No. Uh, you know, things were, things were going extremely well. And, you know, I didn't, uh, I mean, outside of the normal things that pitchers deal with, with their arms and, and, and their bodies, the twinges that they feel, um, there, was, there was absolutely nothing going on. So, you know, at that point, you know, I'm, you know, in particular, when I get traded from San Diego to the Giants, um, that was a, a, that was like being set free um, in many respects because I, I really needed um, a fresh landscape, a, a, a new organization to kind of revitalize, um, you know, where my career was headed because I wasn't pitching very well with the Padres and we weren't playing very well. And, and, and it was just, you know, you just found yourself in a, in a situation where even though you didn't want change to occur because we enjoyed being in San Diego and we were making plans for the future there, um, being traded over to the Giants was uh, a breath of fresh air. Um, and, and one of the beautiful things about that, you know, when you're traded, that's one thing. Um, when you're traded to a team that is winning, that's another thing. But then on top of that, I'm traded to an organization um, where I have friends and guys that I actually know really well. And so moving into that environment was absolutely amazing. And then what followed after that, um, beginning to understand, um, even though I didn't fully understand, but beginning to understand the storied history of this franchise and um, who the Giants are and what they stand for and represent in this community, um, as I began to see and experience that um, in 1987, it, it was just a beautiful thing. That's fascinating. I, I don't know that I knew you were, uh, you were feeling that way at that time. And, and I also am interested in your comment about the fact that you had friends in the organization from the jump, right, when you were traded. Who, who were those friends? What, what were those relationships? Yeah, um, Atlee Hamaker was a really close friend, and it started – actually, I don't get to talk about this very often, but um, my relationship with Atlee goes all the way back to 1979. And it was the winter of 1979, after I had been drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates, that I went down to train in Florida, and I was in Sarasota, Florida. And, man, I can remember this as though it were yesterday. I, I wanted to find a workout place to, um, to stay in shape, and so I found this Nautilus facility, and it was called uh, Jeff Paulson's um, uh Nautilus workout. I can't remember the full name, but it, uh, Jeff Paulson was the guy that that actually owned the joint. And so I went in and I I introduced myself to him, and I was going to ask him to help me with my training. and And he said, "Hey, there's another guy here that's working out. You might want to hook up with him. Um, he's a Kansas City Royals draft pick." And I said, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah." He says, "Come on in back. I'll introduce you." And so that was the first time I met Atlee Hamaker. Mm. <laughs> and 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 then fast forward. I mean, our careers move forward. Fast forward. I get called up to the um, to the Padres in the big leagues, and now it's 1983. I'm in an All Star game, and because of my relationship with Atlee that had continued over the years, 
now that we were in the big leagues, and in 82 when I got called up, we were the new guys on the block in all the different organizations. A lot of young players were starting to get called up, and, and in essence, the, the veterans were handing off the baton to us. And, and so that's when we would come into San Francisco to play or when the Giants would come down to San Diego, we would have a great time connecting with Atlee, Scotty Gerelts. Um, there were a couple of the guys um, in that organization at the time that, you know, we got to know Chili Davis, um, became a friend. And uh, so, you know, you just, you just kept this bond and we would always talk before games. And um, I actually remembered um, there was a conversation that was going on and I'll never forget. Uh, it was with Chili Davis and, uh, I think Tony Gwynn was in the conversation, Atlee Hammaker and myself, Scotty Gerelts, a couple of guys. And what I realized was, um, you know, in this conversation, Chili looked at all of us and said, guys, do you realize we are um, the next in line? We're the next generation. And, uh, and he said, you know what? We need to carry this baton well. And I never forgot that. And, you know, and then in the All-Star game in 83, all of a sudden, um, it's absolutely amazing. Atley and I are in the All-Star game. His wife, Jenny and Jan, connected. And, you know, we just built on that friendship. And, you know, and through the years with the Padres, every time we come into San Francisco, we'd always get together with them. And, you know, we just had this, great relationship and he had, he, he had become you know probably one of my closest friends in the game and uh it was absolutely amazing and then all of a sudden when i get traded over to the giants not only first of all who gets traded in the same division and to a contender right and all of a sudden there i am um as a teammate now of these guys that i have these really good relationships with so it really did help to um, make that transition a lot easier than it would have been had I not known anyone. Man, that's a beautiful coming together uh, on so many fronts. The, the date you're referencing, by the way, is, uh, is America's birthday as well. It was July 4th, 1987. And it really yeah. is, Dave, I know you know this, this is one of the most famous trades in the history of the organization because of all it, it ended up meaning what what do you first what do you remember about that day what do you remember about finding out about the trade well i remember how um how upset i was <laughs> um, we were in montreal the night before and uh all of a sudden the game's over and we walk into the clubhouse and one of the clubhouse kids comes up to me and mitch and, and lefty and says hey um skip wants to see you in his office and larry bow was the manager at the time and uh, we walked in, and, and he told us to sit down, and he said, I'm not going to beat around the bush. We traded you, and you guys are headed to the San Francisco Giants. And I was like, it, it just, it was, you know how you, you go through those stages of grief? And we're hearing a lot about that now as we go through the coronavirus. Um, you know, the denial piece, it kind of just hit. I was like, what? Wait a minute. What just happened? Yeah. You know, no, I'm, no, this this can't be. I'm not traded. This is where we're supposed to spend. You know, I was extremely loyal, and I wanted to spend my entire career there. And I wanted to retire in San Diego and build a network and settle down and and uh, raise my family. And all of a sudden, 
we're hearing these words, you're traded. And and so we took a deep breath. I remember Lefty and I taking deep breaths and kind of going, okay, here we go. You know, this happens. This is the way the game is. And and so, you know, we're going to San Francisco. And and we, we I think we both realized at the time, oh, man, all of a sudden some things are coming into play here. They're, they're, they're fighting for first place. We're in last place. <laughs> this is – this is okay, you know, and so, but, but then we had Boogie Bear, Kevin Mitchell. Yep. <laughs> and Boogie did, Boogie did not want to go. He said, nope, I'm not going. I mean, he will tell you the story to this day that he did not want to get in the cab the next morning and get on a plane and go to Chicago to be with the San Francisco Giants. He had come from the Mets and he became a Padre and he lived in San Diego and he was going to retire in San Diego, and that was it. And I got to tell you, between Lefty and I, I mean, we worked so hard to get that man on into a cab and to the airport and on the plane to go to San Francisco um, because he was not going. And you know, Kevin is Kevin's a very strong man, <laughs> and you just didn't want to mess with him. And we literally were just begging him, please, Kevin, you've got to go. This is, whether we like this or not, you've got this gift, and you're now going to have to use it for the San Francisco Giants. So here we go. You've got to do this. You've got to get in that car in the morning. You better be down in the lobby at this time. Otherwise, we're coming up to get you. And we just looked at each other and said, we're in this together, man. Let's go. And Boogie Bear got on that plane. I was so proud of him. He got on that plane because he did not want to go. And the reception that we received in Chicago was overwhelming. And it was led, um, if I recall correctly, I I can see Mike Kruko's face right now. Hmm. And coming up to me with that big old grin on his face and saying, welcome, Lefty. You know, you're now with the San Francisco Giants, and 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 you're part of the puzzle that's going to help us get there. And he said that to all of us. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, "Whoa, well, this this grief stage, um, I've now moved quickly through acceptance, through to acceptance." Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I'm I'm in the acceptance phase because it's no longer it's transitioned from grief to, well, wait a minute. These guys want us. These guys traded for us. They're headed um, to potentially winning the division and going into the playoffs, which is what every player wants to experience getting to the World Series. And uh, all of a sudden, the club he came up after we were greeted by Kruko, and he said, hey, uh, Roger Craig wants to see you in his office. And so we walked up to his office and walked in and the three of us came in and as we came in we there was uh al rosen hum baby and norm sherry and i'll never forget the words out of al rosen's mouth uh, his welcome to us and being pieces of the puzzle that are we're going to take them into the postseason was it was so overwhelming and you felt so welcomed um and and all of a sudden you realized whoa this is going to be amazing. And then, you know, 
when you have guys that you know come up to you and they're patting you on the back and hugging you and saying, man, I'm so glad you're here with us. You know, it just all of a sudden, all that other stuff just melts away. And so that day on July 4th was for me truly Independence Day, where I was literally set free um, from an organization that obviously didn't want me and um, invited into an organization that did. And that felt really, really good, really good. Whatever you did with Kevin Mitchell also worked really fast. I, I, I mean, because every Giants fan who was, a, you know, rooting for the team at this time remembers. I mean, it was a little bit of a shock to the system that Chris Brown, who was coming off of a, a, an all-star season, was traded so quickly. And, and most fans are like, so wait, who's, who is this, who's Kevin Mitchell that's taking over third base? And he walks to the plate in Chicago and homers two out of the first three times up to the plate. I mean, what you described, nobody would have ever known because he just, he walked in and produced right away. Yeah, because that's Kevin. You know, you put a bat in his hands, man, and you tell him to go play baseball, and all of a sudden he just turns it on. And uh, that was one of the things about him. Once he realized um, through how well um, he was embraced coming into that clubhouse, um, it, it was just a matter of doing what he did best, and that was play baseball. I, you know, it's really interesting. Yesterday on MLB uh, TV they had uh, the 87 season, and they chronicled, uh, you know, the Giants and, and um, oh, gosh, the Cardinals, the Twins, and I believe it was, was it the Tigers or um, I can't remember who the fourth team was in the postseason and then the Twins. I think the Twins beat the Tigers to go to the World Series that year. And they chronicled it. And I'll remember they, they highlighted the um, 4th of July trade and they highlighted Kevin Mitchell coming to bat for the first time and hitting the home run. And the most incredible picture from that moment was when Kevin crossed home plate and Chili Davis greeted him and they both went off and Chili Davis had his name on the back of his jersey and Kevin Mitchell didn't. Right. <laughs> and it was it was classic. It was just this classic thing that had happened so quick that nobody really was prepared for it. And in the end, here's this guy who has no name on his back. And he comes up and he does what he does and um, was one of my all-time favorite teammates. And I've got to tell you, he's a guy that, uh, you know, when you retire from the game, it's hard to stay connected with a lot of guys. Um, and guys staying connected with you. And I try to do my best to stay connected with um, the guys that I was relatively close with. Um, but there's one guy who on a regular basis will call me to check in to see how my wife and I are doing, and that's Kevin Mitchell. Wow. Almost every month I get a phone call or a text from him just checking in. He, could, he nicknamed me Snacks. Because after the game, when the spread was out, I always, <laughs> I guess I enjoyed the spread a little bit too much. <laughs> and so I got the nickname Snacks. So he would always call me and go, hey, Snacks, 
I just wanted to make sure you and Mama are doing okay. Give her a kiss for me. I love you. Just hang in there, buddy. And, you know, periodically we would be able to connect on the phone and talk. And, yeah, I just absolutely adore that man. He uh, um, He's a big part of the story that I've been living in. I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I think you're you're answering this already because one of the things I really wanted to know is when you join a team that, as you said, is already winning, um, you wonder about how new pieces are going to fit in. And there were a lot of stories at that time uh, specifically about you and, and your faith and how you shared that with teammates and within clubhouses. So how how was the whole group – initially received in that that Giants family? Oh, you know, uh, from everything that I remember, um, I thought we were received extremely well. Um, Guys were were awesome. Um, You know, and, and, you know, people were aware of my faith. Um, People were aware of, uh, of, of who I am. And, you know, I think if I recall correctly, when, when we came over, um, one of the things that um, was paramount to our being a part of that organization and part of that ball club was what we did between the lines every day. And from my perspective and Kevin's perspective and Lefty's perspective, we were going out there to give everything we have. And we were going to stay in the fight until the last out. And that's one of the things that um, was was so important to me personally was going out there and giving my best. And, and so, um, you know, that's why I don't think we had any issues on the ball club at all in relationship to us coming there. Every one of us went out there and gave it everything we had. And, and so as a result of that, I think, you know, anytime you're traded, you have to earn trust. Um, because you don't know these guys, and um, they don't know you, and so there's a period of time where you earn that trust. And and in the game of baseball, trust is earned um, not by what you say, but by what you do. And so the bottom line is that um, you know, uh, I know from my perspective, I wanted them to know that as their teammate, I was going to do everything I could with that one piece that one out of 25 players um to help win and it wasn't about me it was about us and i think uh the three of us all felt that way and so as a result of that over time we earned the trust and respect of our teammates and uh that's why i think the chemistry was so good you know was because um none of us came in to stir up trouble and I think the bottom line was that uh, we were very grateful to be a part of such an incredible organization and and to help them win and ultimately get to the postseason that year, which was so much fun. And by the way, it was a whole lot more fun being a teammate of Jeffrey Leonard's than it was being an opponent. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to we'll get to him in a second because in the midst of everything you're talking about. The baseball is going well, both both for the team and for you. I, I can remember there was a stretch from August to September. 
I think you went five and one. Uh, you gave up 11 runs in a stretch of seven starts. So, so you're really throwing well. The team is heading for the, the West crown. How are, how are things feeling at that point for you? Oh, man, it was – I literally felt like I had, had new life breathed into me. And, and on many fronts, you know, I, I, um, I got back with my old pitching coach who used to be in San Diego, uh, Norm Sherry, and he knew me so well. And Norm was the kind of guy where he, he, he figured out what Dave needed. He didn't try and give me what he gave everybody else. Um, he understood me. He knew that there were certain phrases that would help me make adjustments that I needed to make without complicating it. And, and so that was huge for me was getting back to Norm. That comfort level with Norm was, um, I, I think, a, a big factor for me being able to, you know, settle in and find that rhythm. And, you know, and then, you know, when you're surrounded by a group of ballplayers that, you know, the day in and day out, man, I told when we were watching uh, the 87 season yesterday, I looked at Jay and I said, my wife and I just said, golly, we had an incredible lineup. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Yep. So I got to tell you, from an offensive standpoint, from a defensive standpoint, um, it felt really good to be on the bump and going out there and doing what I was doing during that period of time. And to be able to find that rhythm and then to be a part of uh, the quality and caliber of players that were on that ball club, um, yeah, it was it was just really special. So during that stretch, it was absolutely amazing. You know, it's, it's really interesting that you ask, though, because, I mean, generally speaking, I, I have an idea of what that period of time was like, but I got to tell you, if you would ask Will Clark that, he could have probably told you every pitch yeah. that he hit, every pitch <laughs> that he got out on yeah. over that um, stretch of seven or eight games without any question in who the first and last name of the pitchers were. Yep. And 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 you know, I wasn't that guy. I just know that it felt really good. You know, it felt really good. That stretch um, was exactly what I needed to create momentum to get into the postseason. Speaking of feeling really good, how did it feel that when you guys clinched the NL West, you did it in San Diego? Yeah, that felt really good. <laughs> Let's just kind of leave it right there. <laughs> I'm not going to say in your face. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> you were feeling it. Say, grab some, or I'm not going to say grab some pine meats. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, obviously, the, the, the feelings that are within any human being in a moment like that are, are clear. Um, I was also looking at that game, though. Uh, do you remember the final out? It was a 5-4 game. There were runners on, and, and John Cruck hit one to the fence. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, so it was yeah. left field. Yeah. And Donnie Robinson was on the mound. And uh, um, I, I, actually, they showed the video yesterday. That's why I remember. Yeah. And, <laughs> otherwise, had you asked me that question and I'd not seen the video, I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That was a, that 
that was a pretty special moment, man. That was so amazing. The 1-1 pitch. Slug on, fly ball to left field. Back goes Leonard. He's at the track. He makes the catch, and the Giants have won the Western Division. And on the field go the Giants. They have won it by a score of 5-4. to four. The game is over, and the Giants are the champs. Straight to the uh, the NLCS after that, and, and there are the Cardinals, and, and you just mentioned Jeffrey Leonard. Uh, there's a famous clubhouse story before game one where Leonard, who had been slumping, wasn't in the lineup. Roger Craig was going to go with Mike Aldretti instead because because of that slump, and, and Leonard ripped the card off the wall and, and goes into Craig's office, pleads his case, wins his case, but Roger tells him, you have to go tell Aldretti. Were, were you aware of all of this at the time as it's happening? No. No, I wasn't. I was living in my own seat. That's that's the beauty of the game of baseball in some respects. You know, pitchers live in their own little world. Right. And then on top of that, I was left-handed. So I was living in another world other than that world. And so I was oblivious to what was going on with the regulars at the time. Oblivious. By the way, tell me more about You said not only am I a pitcher, but I'm left-handed. Do you really step into that idea that, that lefties are different? Oh, my gosh, all you have to do is live with us. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a little bit of a – I mean, my goodness gracious, I, I like to think I'm not that bad. Um, um, but, man, when I'm around Hammaker, um, he's really bad. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> how different – we. there's just something about lefties, you know. They're, lefties are, in, in essence, out in left field. I mean, they, they really are. Um, being around Craig Lefferts, even when I saw him when we were um, celebrating uh, the recent anniversary, um, you know, for the, uh, I think it was the 89 World Series. It was the 30-year, I think. Um, uh, it was so funny last year because Lefty came into town. I mean, Lefty had changed a bit, man. He's, he's <laughs> always going to be left-handed. He reacts it. He's, it's just a, it, they're a different breed. I guess we're just a different breed. Maybe the amputation has helped me to be a little more centered. I don't know. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you can only sort of claim it now, I guess. That's hilarious. (laughs) Once a lefty, always a lefty. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the whole thing is, uh, is of course, the start of what would be a very rare NLCS MVP performance by Leonard because it was – from a team that didn't end up on on the winning side and it was the birth of something you guys were already aware of but the nation was not which was that one flap down home run drop where, where did you sit on that whole thing just as an observer oh <laughs> i thought it was beautiful <laughs> i mean it was like dude <laughs> what in the world you know for a moment there i thought he might have been left-handed Right. <laughs> doing something crazy like that, you know? Um, and, and yet, uh, you know, I didn't really think anything of it one way or the other because, you know, all I was watching were these incredible home runs that he was hitting and going, yes. Yeah. So do whatever you got to do coming around there, man. I think the, I think the mistake that we made in the postseason um, when we were playing really, really well, and it looked like, I mean, you know, when you look at the, 
the, the two clubs, in, in my humble opinion, we were by far the better team and should have gone to the World Series that year. Um, but I think what ended up happening, unfortunately, was a few came out and got a little bit too vocal about how well we were doing, and I think it woke a sleeping giant. And, and as a result, we ended up paying the price. And that was, that was really hard because, you know, when you heard some of the statements, whoa, whoa, man, kind of low-key that stuff. And, you know, and, and it, just only, it doesn't take a lot. It just takes a little bit, one phrase that even can be taken out of context and put in the press the next day. And that goes up on a billboard in the clubhouse for every player to see. And the next thing you go, because I, and, you know, in watching it, I, I never knew what the responses were after that series. But watching Ozzie Smith um, in an interview talking about how disrespected he felt as a major league baseball player by another team, I was like, whoa. You know, and and um, and so of all of that, as wonderful it was because I remember when the series was over and we had lost, and Jeffrey got the MVP. Um, I, I wasn't real close with Jeffrey, um, and and at the end of that game, we were all out walking out of the clubhouse, and and my wife was with me and a couple other guys, I think Atley and Jenny and and uh, Hackman and and a couple other guys, and, and Jeffrey was carrying the, the trophy. And I was like, dude, you were absolutely amazing in this series. Amazing. And it was just this bittersweet feeling inside, um, even from him. You know, this is this really doesn't mean anything when you lose, but it meant something. And, uh, I, and you know, that was just, that was really hard. I, I can actually picture being on the uh, mezzanine level in, uh, in Cardinal Stadium, in old Bush Stadium, and um, walking out with him, and I can see him carrying it right now. And um, us having that brief conversation about, you know, yeah, this, was, this is really cool, but, you know, this doesn't mean anything when you lose. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was, that was just the reality of a, a really hard series to walk away from losing knowing that we should have been the ones going to the World Series. Well, you are such a, a key figure in the series yourself, too. Uh, I mean, I wonder, going back to your first start of that series, you guys had lost game one, Hackman had homered, um, but in that moment, you know you've got the ball for game two, and therefore the pressure is on. How did you handle a moment like that? Man, I- I don't even know how to describe. Um, it's really interesting. For some reason in postseason play, and I experienced it with the Padres, um, it was like, uh, obviously, you're going to have an adrenaline rush. Um, and it's going to be, there's gonna, you're going to just go and notch up. Um, but it was incredible for me. I guess the best way to describe it, um, for Love of the Game, the movie with Kevin Costner, when he stands on the mound and it's really cloudy and it's kind of fuzzy and he can't see all the people and all of a sudden he says, clear the mechanism. 
And when he says clear the mechanism, all of a sudden there's this this camera that narrows in and focuses right down to the letters in the pocket of the catcher's glove. And everything else is blocked out. That is the best way for me to describe what happened in the postseason for me. When I wore a Padre uniform and when I wore a Giant uniform. For some reason, um, I just got a lot more focused. I, I don't know what it was. I'd always had good focus, but, I mean, it was intense. And I didn't, I didn't display it prior to the game. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that would, you know, on game day, block everybody out, go through a routine in the clubhouse. As a matter of fact, if anything... I wanted not to have a routine, so the more disrupted my time in the clubhouse before a game was, the better it was. The more that guys were joking around and I was a part of that or messing with me, being in the training room and just hanging out there and doing those kind of things, um, the better it was because I didn't like having routine to the point where even when I went out on the mound, I intentionally would step on the baseline because everybody always jumped over it. And I and I just and so when postseason hit and that game came around, um, I was so ready and went into the coaches' meeting with the, uh, um, the the advanced scouting report. And I don't know that I heard one word in that scouting report because <laughs> it, it didn't it didn't matter to me. And I looked at TK and I just I remembered. Or I'm sorry, it was uh, Bo Mel. Um, I looked at Bo Mel and I said, buddy, I said, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to trust you. You know all I want you to know about are where those guys' strengths are if they're a men on base. That's it. And if my, if my pitch, which whatever one it is, is working, and that day they were all working, I don't really care if I'm going to be having to pitch to his strength because what I got today will beat what he's got. That's how confident I felt on the mound that day. And so, man, all the way up until warm-up, I remember I went into the bullpen, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Norm was like, what are you doing? I said, I'm done. He said, you haven't warmed up enough. I said, all I needed to know was that I had my rhythm, Norm. I'm fine. And I remember, you know, I get on the mound. I would get on the mound in the bullpen, and and I'd start throwing. If I felt my rhythm, I'd back off. I'd step back on. I'd get in the windup. I'd throw two fastballs on the inside part of the plate. I'd throw two sinkers on the outside part of the plate. I'd throw two cutters on the inside part of the plate. I'd throw two sinkers right down the middle just to see where they would end up, in case it was moving too much. Um, I'd go in the stretch, and I'd do the same thing. And then I'd go in the windup, and I'd get, I'd throw, I'd, I'd pretend there was a batter at the plate. Last pitch was a three-two count right down the middle, and I'd step off, and I was done. And that's what I did that day because it felt so good. And Norm was like, "Dude, are you sure you're ready?" I said, "Yep, <laughs> let's go." Um, you know, and I watch these kids today. Like, I mean, I'm, I have nothing against Clayton Kershaw, and whatever works for you, great. But, oh, my gosh, if I did what he did before a ball game, 
I'd have never been able to go out past the first inning. I'd have been exhausted. Right. You know, so, yeah, talk about, I mean, that's a long answer to just tell you I was locked in. But, but I got to tell you, man, I was locked in in game two, and it felt good. No, it was it was a great answer because what you were feeling then played out on the field. You know, you got the home runs from both Will Clark and Leonard, but it, it's all about you. It's a two-hit, complete game shutout. To show you what kind of a masterpiece Trevecki has turned in, the fewest hits allowed in an LCS, Ross Grimsley and John Matlack, two-hitter, Vida Blue over in the American League, a two-hitter, and Drebecki has a two-hitter today. And so the Cardinals thoroughly blank today. No two ways about it. Ball hit into left center, and Leonard is there, and that's it. The split is exactly what it is, but the headline, the performance by Dave Drebecki, the young man from Youngstown, a two-hit shutout for the Cardinals, thoroughly muffled. They never had any kind of an offense except in the fourth inning, could not get a man to third. So it was all Drevecki today. What were the emotions after you went out and did that? Mm. I think the greatest emotion was, okay, we've got our ball club even again. Let's keep the momentum going. Uh, Sure, it felt good, but the most important thing was where were we as a club? Where did we stand at the end of that game? And we had tied up the series, and we were going to, now we could create some momentum. So let's go do that. we got a lot to go yet. There's a lot of baseball left. Let's stay focused. So, you know, I was just, it was one game in a seven-game series, and it was over. So now we got to march on to the next one, and I'm really grateful that we were able to shut these guys down today and get the offense we needed and the defense we needed. And um, it was a total team effort. So, okay, man, let's go, boys. Here we go. You come back to San Francisco. The team does win games four and five. You've got your 3-2 lead as you head back to St. Louis, and boom, it's in your lap again. You've got the ball for game six knowing – you can send your team to the World Series. What was that plane flight like for you? Oh, man, that's that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, when it was going to be in my lap, um, you know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I if if anything, all I remember is calm. All I remember is peace. Um, I mean, my rhythm was so good at that point in time. Um, I wanted to be the guy with the ball in the hand, in my hand um, to help our ball club close it out. I was, I was, I was, I was probably the most ready for any game that I have ever pitched in that game game six and I just think a lot of it was because I was I was in such a good place mentally physically rhythm um, you name it um, that relates to 
you know, going out and, and getting good results, that it was just a matter of, of staying focused on that, on that place where, um, you know, you don't get too worked up or you don't, um, well, for me, it wouldn't necessarily be about getting um, too low because, uh, you know, it was more about getting worked up because I'm, I'm starting to get amped. And so going into the clubhouse again, it was the same routine. Keep it, keep it so that um, you don't find yourself falling into a trap where, you know, you're thinking too much about it. Get in the clubhouse, have fun, keep it loose, you know, stick to the, to the way that you've been doing things over and over and over again every fifth day. Um, and, um, and then when it's time to get out there and start warming up, you're ready to rock and roll. And you certainly and so were. Ready. Yeah. Man, I was locked in in game six. Oy. I was uh-huh. so locked in in that game. I was more locked in in that game than I was in game two. I wonder, you you gave up one run in the, the entire series. I mean, it's just an epic performance, but on that night, that was enough for the, the Cardinals to win and, and you guys lose one to nothing. And and so I'm sure going into that game you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go put this team into the World Series. And and you 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 did. You 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 gave the effort that you needed to give and, and it still it still didn't push them over the top. So how would you describe the, the frustration after that game? Yeah, I mean it was very frustrating. But, you know, I also, um, playing the game, you also know that when you're in a game like that, um, out of love and respect for the game, I had to tip my hat to John Tudor. I mean, he did what he was supposed to do. And, you know, and so you walk away from that game, we all gave it our best. And... You know, you just had to tip your hat. At some point, there was going to be a game like that. And, you know, and, and so, you know, in the frustration, I still knew we're not out. We've got one more game to go. And we still have a chance to get into the World Series. And so, you know, that, that was really my uh, – afterwards, sure. I was disappointed. I was frustrated. I hated losing. Um um, but at the same time, I also realized, you know, this game is so much more than what I do or don't do on the mound, what we do or don't do on the playing field. There's somebody we're playing against. And on that day, um, they stepped up and, you know, and John Tudor did what he did to shut us down so that they could go into game seven. And I had to uh, tip my hat to John and the, the incredible game that he pitched. So, you know, in the game that they played, you know, nothing more you could do about that. Yeah. You know, you got to let it, you got to let it go because there's another day. And Goose Gossage taught me this when I was pitching for the Padres. I used to always wonder why his demeanor never changed. He was always fun loving and, happy and enjoying coming down in the bullpen and, 
you know, doing the things that he did in the pen and, you know, just being crazy and keeping guys loose. And I used to go down and he'd bring photos of his ranch in Colorado and we'd sit and look at them. And one day I looked at him, I said, Goose, do you, does this stuff ever bother you? Do you ever get upset? I mean, I, I mean, I've seen you upset, but it's like you come out the next day and it's like nothing ever happened. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, Dave, there's one thing I've learned in this game, and that's this. Regardless of whether or not you win or lose, you've been good or bad, the next day you get another chance. So he said, I pitched fast because I wanted to find out the results as soon as I could get them. (laughs) He said, and if it was good, great. But he said, the next day I woke up, it was a clean slate, buddy. And you do it all over again. And he said, if you can't approach the game that way, it'll eat you up. I would imagine in many ways that that's not just something that you applied to your baseball career, but your life as well. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many things that um, that we face in life. And, and you know, I, uh, there is one thing that I've learned. And, you know, oftentimes... Uh, it's hard to let go of things. And part of the reason why it's so hard to let go of things is we're afraid to talk about them. And so we hold them inside, and that's what drags us down. And what I've learned is, you know, the sooner I'm able to talk about whatever's bothering me inside, the sooner I can let go of it and move forward. And, And so, you know, my wife has always been that buffer for me to be able to, um, and it's taken a lot of hard work on my part. It's taken a lot of hard work on her part to draw it out. And sometimes when she tries to draw it out, she doesn't get a very good response from her husband. But what I've learned over the years is that you have to have that person in your life that you can, um, you can express your fears. You know, it's a great story around that that I think is really helpful for all of us in the midst of this pandemic that we find ourselves in. I'll never forget when I was called up to the big leagues, the first two weeks I was throwing 55 foot fastballs. It was terrible. And um, Dick Williams came out to the mound about two weeks into the season. And he looked at me and, and I was on the mound. I was in a relief role and he came out to the mound and he looked at me and he said, rookie, so if you don't start throwing strikes, I'm going to send you back to AAA. And in my mind, I was thinking that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it was because I was playing AAA ball in Hawaii. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, so, so it's so funny because that night I went home. And um, I, I went back to the Biltmore Hotel and Jan had come up with our um, our newborn, Tiffany, our daughter. And she looked at me when I walked in the door and she goes, what is wrong? And for a couple of weeks, um, I was not able to express what was going on inside. And I finally walked in and I sat down and I looked there and I said, you know what, babe? I'm scared to death. I don't know if I can do this. And she looked at me and she said, well, First of all, I want you to know something. I didn't marry you because you were a baseball player. If you can't do this anymore, 
it's okay. I love you for you, not because you're a ball player. And there was a little bit of relief. Then she looked at me and she said, you know, she said, let me ask you a question. Who are you trying to be out there? And I said, well, you know my hero is Sandy Koufax, so <laughs> I'm trying to be the next Sandy Koufax. And she looked at me and she goes, the most profound thing. Well, she looked at me and she said, you know what? The Padres brought you up because they liked you. Why don't you go out there and just be the best you you can be? And if that's not good enough, it's okay, honey. It's all right. And in that moment, it clicked. It clicked. And so what I've come to learn in life is, um, you know, and especially in a crisis like we're in, a lot of us are sitting isolated, but we're isolated with someone else for the most part. And what a great opportunity to be able to express your fears, to be able to talk about what's going on inside that you are apprehensive about or uh, what you're concerned about. People are talking in their apartments and in their homes now about whether or not they're going to still be able to go to work. Um, are they going to get called back um, in the midst of the work? What dynamics are going to change when we go back to work? Um, what do we do if we go out? You know, we've got to be so careful, and I'm so concerned about these things. We have a child, and how are we going to deal with this with our child? You know, um, my kids have, my son has an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. What do I communicate to them in the midst of this? Their world is being turned upside down. And so we have all these things that we're wrestling with internally that if we don't talk about, quite frankly, will make it a lot worse. Um, because when we do begin to talk about it, it eases the fear. It eases the despair and the tension and the frustration. Having somebody to communicate those things with is so important. And, you know, in that moment, um, you know, when you feel like, uh, you know, you, there's just a lot of frustration building up. What I learned um, is that, you know, when I bring those things out in the open, um, it's a lot easier for me to deal with. And the pressure seems to decrease, not increase. And uh, I think that's something that we can exercise and practice while we're being locked up. You're not going to believe this, Mark. I am sitting here right now, and I just threw a ground ball for a force out against the Tigers in the World Series in 84. <laughs> I'm watching it on MLB. It came up. I, I was, you know, when, when I talk, I pace. And all of a sudden, I looked at the TV, and there I was standing on the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, throw the cutter, baby. Throw the cutter. <laughs> nice pitch, Dave. Yeah, swing and go, Dave. <laughs> And my wife uh, was like, was that really you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I, I mean, all of this stuff, you know, coming from you, I think it means even more than, uh, than, than it would coming from, from some others because of, of what you lived. You know, we were just talking about the, the Game 6 experience and then obviously the disappointment that comes the next night as, as the, the Cardinals win the series where – where you guys thought you were uh, the better team. But, you know, you, you all take that, 
into the next season, and I'm sure everybody is riding high with incredible confidence to start a season and try to go do it again. And, and even on an individual level, you're pitching well at that point in, in 1988. But things were about to change. What was the first sign of trouble for you? Uh, there was there was a um, – actually, it was smaller than a pea-sized lump halfway between my shoulder and elbow. And it was in the winter of 1987 that I actually had an MRI down in San Diego because we were still living there at the time. And, and, um, and they didn't find anything. It was the, the MRI came back inconclusive. And so they said, Hey, you're okay. And so with that, I started the, the, um, uh, preparation in the off season for spring training. And then the home baby calls me in and says, we want you to be our opening day pitcher. And in that moment, I was, I was overwhelmed. Um, you know, getting the opportunity to start out of the shoots for the San Francisco Giants on opening day. And, and then it's, you know, you also add to that, it's Chavez Ravine and you're playing against the Dodgers and it's Dave Grabecki versus Fernando Valenzuela on opening day. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing Coming off of the 87 season, I felt so good. My rhythm coming out of spring training, you know, it, during spring training, every year they would have top five pitchers in spring training in the USA Today and the top uh, uh, five worst pitchers in spring training. And every year I was in the top five worst <laughs> until 1988. I finally in 88 had a great spring. And I was riding high, and I was feeling so good. And we go up against the Dodgers on opening day, and we win 5-1. to one. And, I mean, I give up a home run to Steve Sachs on the very first pitch of the game. Cut fastball. I'll never forget, years later, I saw Steve, and he said, hey, you know how I was able to hit that ball out of the ballpark off you? And I said, no, tell me. He says, you know, Drevecki, he said, you always pitch me inside. You've broken so many of my bats, I can't tell you how many. He said, so this time I decided I was going to guess that you were coming in with the cutter on the first pitch, opening day. And I guessed right because I stepped into the bucket and I pulled that sucker right down the third baseline and it ended up being a home run. And, and that was it. And, and from there, though, I'll never forget, I ended up throwing a three-hit shutout after that. And we beat them 5-1 to one and I got a double off of Fernando, so that was cool. And I'm thinking, man, this is this is going to be my year. I am so excited, and I am in such a groove. Uh, that opening day, I just felt like I was in mid-season form, and um, and I threw a complete game. When does that ever happen that, these days? Right. Where the guy that opens up opening day throws a complete game. So anyway, you know, by the mid-season, uh, I'm having arm problems totally unrelated to the uh, this lump that now was growing on my arm. And I needed uh, surgery uh, for a torn bicep tendon. So I had that, tried to come back from that, but I couldn't. And ultimately it culminated with that as a result of not being able to throw, not being able to lift, none of those things. The arm, there was significant atrophy. And so this lump ended up looking like it was just bigger and bigger. And we didn't know if it was atrophy or growth. 
And so with that, I went in for the MRI, and that's when um, uh, we, had, we had been given permission towards the end of the season to go back and actually have the MRI back in Ohio where we were living at the time. And um, we were in the waiting room waiting for the doctors to come in after they had seen the results of the MRI. And I'll never forget this, Mark. We were sitting in the examining room, and we basically thought we were dealing with blockers brews which happens to football players a lot, where you bump, you get hit really hard, it tears tissue, that tissue calcifies and forms almost like an additional bone. That's what this lump felt like on my arm. Like the bone had just calcified and hardened and grown into that little mass. And as we were sitting there waiting for the doctors, the door was open about three or four inches, and I'll never forget when the doctors came up the hallway they stopped and they flipped the films under the lights in the hallway there before they came in. And they were confirming what they were going to tell Jan and I, and that's what we heard the word cancer for the first time. I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. And we just stared at each other and we went, cancer? And they continued to talk, and all I could think about doing in that moment was to look at Jan and say, we need to pray. And so I just said, you know, God, I have no idea what we're about to hear or what we're about to face, but whatever it is, please give us the strength to endure this. That's all I ask. And about 15 seconds later, the door opened and the doctors came in and they said, "Uh, Dave, you have cancer in your left arm. And in that moment, I went to a totally different place. It was like an outer body experience. And I remember... I'm thinking about my family, thinking about my wife. And the first thought that came to mind was, if I die from this disease, who's going to bury my wife? And then I thought, oh, my gosh, this person's going to raise my children. And then I thought, will he love my wife and kids as much as I do? But then a really, really strange thought came into my mind after that one. And it was this. Oh, my gosh. I know who I am. Will this guy love them more than I do? Because it was, it, was, it was an amazing moment of this gut check. And I think oftentimes when we find ourselves in places of crisis, we have an opportunity to reflect and, and kind of get a picture of what our life is like. And, and sometimes... Um, it, it helps to adjust our perspective on life when we go through these difficult times. That's what I think it's doing for Jan and I right now. I'm in the midst of the, um, the pandemic is to just evaluate, you know, what is life going to look like moving forward? You know, we've had really, really sweet time together. We've had an opportunity to, you know, um, do some things a little differently than we've done in the past. And it's actually been really good and healthy for us. And so in that moment, in that waiting room, you know, that's what I was thinking about. This adjusted perspective on my life. I, I don't want, I, I'm, I'm, I've got this opportunity to change things. What are the things I want to change in my relationship with my bride? What are the things I want to change in my relationship with my kids? How do I want to look at life moving forward knowing that it's so fragile? 
And I've got to tell you, it was it was a very hard moment. But now reflecting back, it was it was a really really sweet moment too because in that moment, um, as a result of coming face to face with that perspective, um, I began the journey that has continued to this day in um, in just making the adjustments in life that are necessary to really live it to the full and to experience it in, in beautiful ways that I don't think I would have ever experienced it had not I had that perspective change. And so as a result of that, um, that's what's happening now. The same things are going on in my life now, and that's what I would encourage your listeners to think about in this moment is, you know, when, when things change, our circumstances change, what does it do to our heart? What does it do to the way we see life? And what are some of the things that we're very much aware of in our life that need to change? And are we willing to take the risk and step out into those new places so that we can enjoy life um, to its full and, and, and appreciate it a lot more than sometimes we do when we get caught up in the rat race of life? You know what I noticed in you telling that story and all of the thoughts that went through your head at that time, never did you use the word baseball. No. No, baseball. You know what? I've, I've seen base, baseball has been one of the most amazing experiences of my life. But it's not what defines me. As a matter of fact, baseball has been a vehicle through which I have been able to learn so much about life and so much about um, uh, the importance of how I view life. Baseball has given me that platform, and the experiences that I've had have been able to shape um, me to where I'm at today in relationship to how I look at life now. Um, And so I want you to know um, that baseball has been very, very important to me, very important to me. Um, And yet, um, at the same time, it's not what's defined me in life. Okay, quick pause to thank our sponsor, T-Mobile. It's never been more important to stay connected. And T-Mobile has taken steps to support customers along with frontline workers nationwide During these uncertain times, they've been amazing. T-Mobile responded to customer needs by increasing network capacity, lifting smartphone data caps, and increasing data allowances for schools and students in the Empower Ed program. They've also committed to donate $2.5 million to over 100 local schools and Boys and Girls Club of America, which provides child care for our nation's first responders and healthcare workers, meals for families in need, and more. T-Mobile is committed to supporting customers, communities, and thanking frontline workers across the nation. Visit T-Mobile.com for more information. And now back to Inside Giant Moments. Backing up to after you've got a diagnosis and we establish that you're thinking life, you're not thinking baseball. Mm-hmm. What is... What is your mental and physical recovery like, and, and when do you get to the point where you are suddenly thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to come back and pitch? 
Hmm. Well, with that first surgery, after they had done what they did in removing the tumor and the cryosurgery, um, I remembered going to, um, I actually remembered going to uh, the therapist um, in Ohio for the first time. And, and uh, he said, uh, I just stood there. And he said, um, okay, show me what kind of range of motion you have. And I stood there, and I tried to move my arm, and it didn't go anywhere, Mark. Nowhere. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I don't know if I'll ever be able to throw a baseball again. And I will never forget. I'll never forget. When we um, when we started therapy, and we ended up um, going through the routine of getting strength in my arm and doing all those things. It started with him just moving my arm on his own. I couldn't move it, but he did. And as he got the muscles to fire up, um, all of a sudden, uh, it started getting stronger and, and stronger And the next thing you know, I found myself in the kitchen of my mom and dad's house. And I was with my wife. And I walked in and I said, watch this. And I stepped back. And I went and pulled my wallet out of my back pocket. And it was like, oh my gosh. You can actually get your hand back there to pull it out. And, um, and that, in that moment, Jan looked at me and she goes, oh, my gosh, babe, you just might be able to do this. And I think it was in that moment that in that simple act, I was actually able, I went and I pulled the wallet out of my back pocket. And then, if I'm not mistaken, I actually looked at her and I said, watch this. And I went into my wind-up, Mark. I went into my wind-up and went through my full wind-up. And she said, she just, she just freaked out. She just freaked out. And I was like, I have no idea if I can even hold on to a baseball and do this. But the fact that I'm able to get my arm up and go through my delivery, I'm somewhere down the road here, if things get if things get stronger, I just might be able to do this. And so that was when there was a significant shift mentally for me um, to all of a sudden start thinking about the possibility the possibility of a comeback. The possibility. You know, the mind uh, the mind goes where the mind goes at those times. I thought it was amazing uh, the way the way you described all that. Um, and I'm also curious, as you talk about that moment with the, the mental moment where you thought, okay, my mind's open to pitching, what do you now need to do physically over the next six months? Well, I think that's, that's where, golly, I mean, there's so much going through my head right now in relationship to that question because it calls into – the uh, the story and the picture that I have, all the amazing people that played such a significant role in my life to get me back to the mound, um, which which causes me to pause 
and and to actually reflect on the amazing people right now that are doing so much as they go into um, you know those places um, all over the country hospitals are our first responders that are going in and doing all they can to save lives in this crisis and I think about all those amazing people that entered into my story who um, helped me to get there and it all started with Mark Laton you know the trainer for the San Francisco Giants and then um, uh, I think it was Dr. Uh, Campbell who was the doctor with the Giants that oversaw um, you know my situation and, and connected me with the Palo Alto Sports Clinic and Larry Brown who was one of the leading physical therapists in the country at the time and and his staff that began the um, the intense process of me making a comeback. And I will, I will never forget when I got back to San Francisco and got engaged with all those guys and this team put together a plan for me. Larry Brown pulled me aside and he said, Dave, I want you to, um, I want you to visualize this as a prize fight. And what you're going to do over the next several months is work as hard as you can to prepare for this prize fight, which is the possibility of you getting on the mound again. And he said, but what we're going to do in order for that to happen is we're going to do um, double sessions. And so get prepared. And I had no idea what that meant until the first day. And, oh, my gosh. I had never worked so hard up to that point in my life as an athlete in getting prepared for a season. Um, you remember the old uh, stair climber that you had to grab up on top with your hands and your feet all had to work together, coordinated? Oh, my gosh, he killed me on that thing. And that was just the warm-ups. And then we would go into um, these isometric exercises initially to start and and then he was really careful with adjusting and moving me into a process of lifting weights and developing strength around the joint in order to um, uh, in order to strengthen my arm uh, because they had removed 50% of the deltoid muscle and the doctors told me outside of um, um, uh, that 50% mass being gone you, you lost 95% use of that muscle so all these other muscles in that area had to kick in um, and, and they had to come together to compensate for the lack of the deltoid muscle that was there. And so it was extremely intense during that period of time, but it was a period of time that um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what it meant to push through. Um, and, and then when it was time to actually throw a baseball and I started playing catch in the parking lot with Larry at the Palo Alto Sports Clinic, um, we, we started catching, playing catch with a football, and then he would use a tennis ball for me to just go through my delivery. And then we started playing catch with a baseball. And he said, hey, I want you to go through your windup. And I went through for the first time ever. I pretended that I was on the mound. And outside of that day in my mom and dad's kitchen, when I showed Jan, I went back into that windup and I threw a pitch to Larry and he stopped. And he just stared at me. And he walked up to me and he goes, do you realize 
after watching footage of you throw a baseball, I was thinking we were going to have to adjust your delivery significantly. And he said, Dave, the pitch you just threw looked almost identical to the way you used to throw before you got this. And I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, so what does that mean? Because all we've got to do is get you strong. It's all there. We just have to get you strong. And so the next thing you know, I'm in uniform with the club when they're at home, um, going out and playing catch out in the outfield and doing all those things with uh, the guys and feeling like I'm getting a step closer to all of this. And it was, it was absolutely amazing. It really was. It was, it was so incredible. So it was really all of that, that, that helped me, um, you know, to get to that place where I would finally get the opportunity to pitch again. That summer when you started an actual rehab assignment in the minors, how did it feel? How did that process go? Well, it was, it was incredible because it started off with me, um, you know, uh, getting a start against the, with the San Jose Giants against the Stockton Ports. And I'll never forget, um, I think I actually drove over with Ralph Barbieri. And, um, on, on, and we were driving over the uh, Altamont Pass. I'll never forget. <laughs> and we were going to go into Stockton. And so we, um, we ended up, uh, I ended up getting there at the ballpark. And, and uh, it, was, it was absolutely amazing. Um, I was in the clubhouse with the guys, and I never forget. Um, it's really interesting that I can remember certain things really clear, and other things I have no clue. Um, Danny Fernandez was my catcher. Todd Oates was the manager, and I'll never forget. You know, Todd telling me, "Okay, you got a 75 pitch limit. We're going to keep this to 75 pitches." And 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 so I was talking to Danny Fernandez in the in the uh, clubhouse, and I was saying, "Look." You know, he wanted to know what pitches I threw. And I said, well, I throw fastballs, sinker, four-seamer. I mean, he goes, do you have a change-up? I said, no. Do you have a curveball? I said, no. He says, well, then what else do you throw? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, Danny, you'll see when we go out and I throw BP. I have a cut fastball. And, and the cutter, I usually um, will take speed off of the cutter, and it looks more like slurve. And, and I said, my sinker, I can take speed off my sinker, and, I, you know, I'll throw it. 84, 85, 86 miles an hour, and then I'll throw it 80, 81 miles an hour. And he goes, you can do that? And I said, yeah. And so we went out, and, and we went to the bullpen to warm up. <laughs> when, I gave him, when I gave him the cutter sign, he had no idea what I was going to throw him. <laughs> And so I called him up to me, and I said, if this is the cutter, and I want you to set up on the outside part of the plate to a right-hander. He said, okay, cool. And so I did it. He came out to me and said, I've never seen anybody throw that pitch. <laughs> and I said, well, I like to use it a lot in the game, so don't be surprised if I shake you off and go to the cutter a lot. He goes, okay, cool. So the game started, and I had 75 pitches, and now it's a, it's a doubleheader, and we're in a um, – uh, we're in the seventh inning, and it's the final inning. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, Todd Oates 
comes out and he goes, hey, you've just hit your 75th pitch. And I had two outs and I had two strikes on the batter. And I looked at him and I said, go back and sit down. He said, Dave, I can't. I was told to bring you out at 75 pitches. I said, I'm going to get this guy out in the next pitch. I said, go sit down. I'm going to do Dave, I can't. Todd, please, are you kidding me? I got two strikes on the batter. We're winning the ball game. It's the seventh inning. If I finish this guy out right now, the bottom line is we're done. We're done. And so <laughs> he says, okay. He said, I said, look, you won't be in trouble. I'll tell him it was me, not you. Don't worry about it. So the next pitch, I threw a ground ball, got the guy out, and we ended up winning the ball game. And it was so amazing. And, oh. and Mark, I got to tell you, I have to tell you, when we got when we first got there, we had no idea what was going to happen. By game time, there were over four thousand people lining the fences at the Stockton Ports ballpark, and it was overwhelming. All Giants fans that came out um, to see the beginning of the comeback. It was so encouraging. It was absolutely amazing. When the decision is made to actually go up to the big club and give this thing a shot, what's going on there? When, when is that decision made? Uh, the second game was with the San Jose Giants again. Uh, we went to Reno and played against that ball club, and we won that game. I threw another complete game. And then they bumped me up to AAA with the um, Phoenix Firebirds. And they had me start against the Tucson Toros, which was the Houston Astros. And at the time, Kevin Bass was um, rehabbing. And so I thought in this start, if I could pitch well in this start and get Bass out, then I felt like I'd be ready for the big leagues. And so they gave me uh, no pitch limit, um, nine-inning game. And, uh, and, and I went out and I threw a complete game, and we won three to two. As a matter of fact, all three games, I threw complete games, and we won those games. And afterwards in the clubhouse, um, Bob Kennedy, Terry Kennedy's dad, who was working with Al Rosen at the time, um, Bob came in and, and, uh, and he said, Dave, great job. Great job, man. But he said, I just want you to know I got off the phone with Al and, and we both agree that you're not ready yet because Bob was there scouting me to make sure I was okay. And I looked at him and I said, Bob, are you kidding me? I said, I'm ready. What more do you want me to do? I've just thrown my third complete game in a row. I said, if, if I'm not ready now, I'll never be ready. I got Kevin Bass out. <laughs> I mean, it was, just, it was like, come on, I'm ready to go. He said, Dave, I'm sorry, man, but Al Rosen, when he says no, you know he means no. And I said, Bob, Bob, you got to call him back. you got to tell him I'm ready, please. And he said, I'm sorry, son. And he just turned around and started walking away from me. I was so discouraged. And all of a sudden, Right before he walks out, he turns around, he comes back at me, and he goes, just kidding, you're going to the big leagues. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, why did you do that to me? <laughs> I gave him a big old hug, and I was all fired up, man. So I will never, ever forget that. And then um, I remember, you know, that's when – you know, going up to coming up to San Francisco, uh, that's when I got a call from Pat Gallagher and a group of folks with the Giants at the time who wanted me to meet with little Alex Velajos, who was battling leukemia. And um, I had an opportunity to spend some time with him, which was really cool. 
And then all of a sudden, um, the day of the game on August 10th, I'm driving into the ballpark and on the radio, I hear that um, um, Isabel Lemon uh, with KMBR at the time had put out a, um, an opportunity for the fans in San Francisco to help little Alex by donating money to help offset the cost that the parents were going to incur for a blood drive to find a bone marrow match, a donor. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. And then they said, and we're going to donate for every pitch that Dave throws in the game. Mm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? And so I had just met the boy a couple days earlier, and uh, we did a little piece on one of the television stations to kind of help the family out with making it public. But I didn't know they were going to have it done in in relationship to me pitching. And so when I got into the clubhouse, I went straight to Home Baby's office, and I said, have you been listening to the radio? And he goes, no. I said, Home, the little boy Alex that I've been – spending time with these battle of leukemia, they just announced on KMPR that they're making people are gonna, in the community are going to be making donations um, to help this family with every pitch that I throw. And I looked and I said, please let me go a hundred pitches. And he looked at me and he said, Dave, we have to win a ball game. I said, I get that, but let me go as long as I can go, please begging you. He said, well, we just have to see how the course of the game goes. And I said, then I looked at him and I said, I got one other request. And he goes, what's that? I said, I want Terry Kennedy behind the plate. Because in the off season, Mark, in, I think it was December or January, um, I'll never forget when I was on the road to the comeback, I looked at my wife and I said, Man, how amazing would it be if somehow, some way, Terry Kennedy, the guy who knows me best behind the dish, would get traded or signed with the Giants and he'd be my catcher. Mm. I just randomly threw that out there. And all of a sudden in January, I look and there's an announcement that the Giants have just signed Terry Kennedy. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. If I make this comeback, he's going to get to catch me. And so now fast forward, and I'm in the, I'm in the office of Roger Craig, and I said, I want TK behind the dish. And he did not say a word. He just looked at the lineup card in front of him, and he pushed it towards me, and he, and he just pointed. And I looked, and there was TK in the lineup. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is all coming together. This is so awesome. And so that's what that's what that that day was like. It was amazing. Wow, wow! And it's August tenth, nineteen eighty nine, and yeah. you go out on the mound against the Reds. How do you put into words the emotions as you walk in between the lines? Oh. Um. Hmm. Well, to set the stage that morning. I remembered my wife and I um, actually going into the bedroom and um, we knelt down on the floor right next to our bed and 
and I just prayed a simple prayer. And it was a prayer of just thankfulness for another chance to be able to play this incredible game that I love so much. And on the way in with all that was going on and then seeing Hum Baby, the next thing that was on my mind that was so important was just really being able to relax and settle in like um, everything was normal. Try to create as much normalcy as possible. And, uh, and I remember how important that would be in relationship to uh, what was about to happen on August 10th, 1989. And, you know, and I just wanted desperately to um, settle into um, that routine that wasn't routine and just go in and joke with the guys and have a good time and enjoy it, but also be very thankful and very grateful for the fact that um, I was back in my uniform as a giant and um, because I knew that it could have very easily been the other. And so, um, you know, that, that day, man, I just, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it other than that I was just really, really thankful um, for the opportunity to, to be a part of a group of men that I had so much respect for and so much love for and was so grateful for their support through this whole experience. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was in many respects, it was surreal. I wonder how those emotions evolve as you're not just there, but you're pitching like the old Dave Dravecki. I mean, you're, you're in the eighth inning and you haven't given up a run and, Luis Quinones hits a three-run homer off you late, but you, you still get the win. The Giants win that day, four to three. And so, when you get to the other side of that of that day, and you're walking out there as the as the winning pitcher, what's going through your mind at that moment? Oh, I was, I, 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 I again just. So thankful, so grateful. Um, looked at all those guys. I mean, they. I mean, during this whole thing, they had to be looking at me and wondering, you know, and thinking to themselves, "This dude's never going to pitch again." Because I was thinking, I don't know that I'll ever pitch again. And you know, Griffey is pumped. You know, Bedrosian is pumped. Griffey's going to be looking for that pitch he can drive. Here's the 0-2 pitch. Struck him out, and the ball game is over. Steve Bedrosian blows it by Ken Griffey here in the ninth inning to make a winner of the Giants and Dave Dravecki this afternoon here at Candlestick Park. And then for all of us to be a part of this and to be able to share it with them, it was so cool to be able to share that with um the fans of San Francisco, you know, when I was in the bullpen that day and I was warming up and they started when I was in the pen to give me ovations, that was overwhelming. 
It was overwhelming. The love and the prayers and the support of this community during that period of time all kind of welled up in that victory afterwards. Is realizing without that, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. I think about the encouragement that my wife was given through that period of time with wives of dear teammates and friends, um, the encouragement from the organization through that whole process. Thousands and thousands. We received literally thousands of pieces of mail that went into our garage, and I could no longer park my car in the garage. It was full of Army gunny sacks of mail. Just wishing us well, um, it, it was overwhelming. And so in that victory, it wasn't Dave's victory. It wasn't the Giants' victory. Um, it, was, it was a victory for all of us. And is your arm feeling normal at that normal. point? Hey, I'm in the saddle, baby. I'm ready to rock and roll. Let's go. We're in wow. a pennant race. I'm ready. I am so locked in. And so five days later, I'm I'm gnawing at the bit. I can't wait to get back on the mound. No pain. So that five days later is in Montreal. And, again, you're you're cruising along, pitching great. And then take us through what happens in the fifth inning. Yeah, actually, actually it was in the sixth. Um, got through the fifth was in the dugout. Was it in the sixth or the fifth? <laughs> I had it the in the stats? fifth, but I, <laughs> yeah, I think it was the fifth, but. <laughs> are you left-handed? <laughs> <laughs> no, but my, I have a son and a daughter who are, so. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's so they do run in the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, actually, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was the sixth inning. I was facing Tim Raines, and uh, I think I had just hit Andres Galarraga. Um, I threw an errant pitch, and it felt a little weird, but I didn't think much about it, you know, because I still didn't have any pain. And um, Terry Kennedy put down um, the signal, the sign for a, a sinking fastball, um, low and away. Um, wanted to keep the ball on the ground, even though Rock – can run like a deer um, my chances were a lot better than seeing him hit a triple in the gap um, by putting it on the ground so I reared back to throw that pitch and when I released the ball well no I didn't even I don't even remember releasing the ball when I came forward to throw the pitch to release it there was this huge explosion in my left ear Dravecki gives him a look. Here's the pitch to the plate, and it goes all the way to the screen. Dravecki falls down and grabs his left shoulder, and he is hurting. Dravecki is hurt badly. And at that point, that's all I remember until um, Mark Laton and Will Clark, who had, Will had raced to me immediately, and then Mark came out from the bench, and they were all I could hear him say was, breathe, breathe because apparently I was going into shock. And so when I caught my breath, I, for some reason I initially grabbed my arm because I thought when I, broke, when I heard the snap that the bone had actually protruded the skin. 
and I grabbed my arm because I, I wanted to feel whether or not that had happened because, because I definitely pass out at the sight of blood. And so I didn't want to see any blood. And so I was laying there on the ground and I finally caught my breath and, um, and I knew what had happened. And so all of a sudden, uh, I remembered, uh, getting put on the gurney and being wheeled into the clubhouse and, you know, a lot of guys were following and checking to make sure I was okay. And, and, um, they were setting up for me to get to the hospital to get an x-ray and, all of a sudden, Mike Fitzgerald, catcher on the other on the Expos, comes running into the clubhouse, and there were probably a half a dozen other Expos that came into our clubhouse. And in that moment, it was it was surreal because Bob Nepper, um, who was a teammate at the time, Bob looked at Al Rosen and said, "Gosh, Al, do you mind if I just pray for Dave before he leaves?" And Al said, "Sure, go right ahead, Bob." And and I've got to tell you, I don't recall. You know, it was just a short prayer, um, and 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 off I went. And uh, Mike Fitzgerald, before I left, came up and literally hugged me and gave me a kiss on the cheek, and said he loved me. And um, and he's the he was the cousin of uh, Danny Gospel, who was my center fielder in Double A baseball, back with the Amarillo Gold Sox in 1981, Mark. And so M- Mikey and I had had a relationship for a long time, and. And it was the, the support and the encouragement of those guys was just overwhelming. And then I got wheeled. Um, and it was Duffy Jennings. Duffy got me in the cab, took me to the hospital. They did x-rays, confirmed that I had a spiral oblique, and, uh, um, which meant that the, the arm broke while the humerus bone was rotating, so it splintered in the break. Instead of it being a clean break, it was a splintered break. And... Uh, I remember the doctor gave me some pain medication in a little bag and gave it to Duffy and said, here, take this with him, and he'll need to take this um, because he's going to be in a lot of pain. And and, uh, we got back in the cab, and Duffy took me back to my room, and I got up there, and and Hambone was there, Atlee Hamaker, um, Greg Linton, Jeff Brantley, Brett Butler, Scotty G, Geralt's. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if there were any other guys that were there. And they were just waiting for me. And so I came in, and they were making sure I was okay. And, and, and we, we just started talking. And, you know, this is a, another part of the story that I, I don't really talk a lot about publicly. But, um, gosh, it's been 30 years, and it's, and it, and it's actually – so encouraging because I think it reflects a lot on where we're at today. Those guys stayed in that room until two, two thirty in the morning, maybe three, um, just encouraging me, you know, and, and just, um, making sure that I was okay. And I was so grateful for that. And what was really amazing was that every one of my teammates came to my room that night and checked in on me to see that I was okay. Roger Craig, Al Rosen, Dirk, travel secretary, Mark Laton, Greg Lynn, the assistant trainer, all of them, the coaches, anybody associated with the ball club came to check and make sure that I was okay. Murph the surf, 
all of them. And I was overwhelmed by that outpouring of love, overwhelmed by it. And so encouraged um, that my friends would, my closest of friends would stay there with me until three o'clock in the morning. But the only problem was snacks did not get any food after the game. <laughs> and so I was so flipping hungry. And, and, I, and I looked and Scotty Gerelts goes, what do you want, man? I'll go get it. I said, whatever you can find, just bring food. And so he went out in the cab after midnight looking for a restaurant. And all he could find was a Burger King. Mark, I swear, that kid brought back $250 worth of hamburgers. We had Whoppers. We had cheeseburgers. I mean, we had a feast sitting there on my bed with five or six of us just sitting. We were, I mean, there were moments of of just silence in awe of what was going on in laughter. Um, you know, some, not, not actually tears, but some sadness. We were kind of feeling all the emotions of what had just happened, but I wasn't doing it alone. I wasn't doing it alone. And that was so important. And, you know, that's why, you know, going through this um, pandemic and this crisis, we find ourselves in, not to do it alone. My gosh, I, I wish I would have invested in Zoom six months ago. Right. Lord, I mean, <laughs> Lord, I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful tool to stay connected. And even though you're not with somebody, you're still with them because you see a face and you can communicate and, and you can know that you're not alone just by connecting FaceTime, whatever it is, whatever tool you have. And then the value of you know, your family being with you when you're cooped up in your house or your apartment. So that moment was priceless to have those guys there um, to make sure that I was okay. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Mm -hmm. By the way, through that whole period of time, Mark, I did not take one pill of those pain meds. Wow. And finally, Scott Gerelts looked at me on his way out and said, hey, call me and Atlee in the morning and we'll come, up, we'll come in and help you get your shower. But he said, hey, before you go to bed, you might want to take one of those pain meds. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And, yeah, it was just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, so hard. yeah, I looked it up. You are right. Sixth inning. My apologies. <laughs> yeah. Sixth well, inning. One, um, yeah, one of those rare moments I was right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, are you thinking in that moment, I just have a broken arm, or do you know something bigger is going on? No. Um, I don't know that something bigger is going on. All I think is I've got a broken arm, and now I have to get back to uh, um, San Francisco and um, we're going to have to follow up with um, we're going to have to follow up with the doctors and see what happens. Um, so, you know, the next day, I I got up and and uh, you know I went to the press con I went to a press conference. Um, and in that press conference, um, you know, it was really really important. Um, in that moment, you know, you've mentioned about my faith and. Um, you know that I've I've shared often about the importance of that in my life, and and I remember that press conference, and uh, one of the reporters, um, I think it was Cohen, 
um, with the uh, sporting green. Um, there was total silence in the room. And and I was standing there, and they were all kind of staring at me as I was standing there with my sling and and uh, broken arm. And all of a sudden, um, he said, Dave, he said, so I want to ask you, uh, where is your God now? And I was so grateful for the question because, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, we associate God with just being a part of the good stuff, and then when bad stuff happens, he's nowhere to be found. And I had the opportunity to say, you know, my circumstances have changed, but um, God hasn't, and he's right here in the middle of my story. And I have no idea what it looks like moving forward, but I'm going to continue to trust him with it and all the people that he's placed in my life to help me. And, um, and, and that's, you know, as we moved forward, that's what my wife and I did. We continued to trust all the doctors and the people that were being placed in our lives to help us with the next steps in our story. And um, I was overwhelmed when I got to San Francisco and we came off of the airplane. There were hundreds of people in the airport. That was back in the day when they actually allowed everybody to come into the airport. (laughs) There were hundreds of people that were actually waiting for me. And there to support Jan and I and uh, to be an encouragement to us. And I was, oh, my gosh, we were, I was so floored. They had actually set up a place for me to stand to be able to address them. And I, I just, when I look back on that, I just, we, we continue to this day to be so overwhelmed by the outpouring of love from this community, this wonderful city called San Francisco. Um, it was, that was an amazing moment that I'll never forget. Never forget. Um, just incredible. And, you know, you're staying with the team through this time, uh, through winning the division in the NLCS. And then as you're trying to recover game five celebration in beating the Cubs, uh, you get re-injured again. What, what happened that day? That's a day that I don't like talking about. Right, I bet. <laughs> you know, I, I'll never forget sitting on the bench, and we're getting really close to clinching this thing and going on. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Tom Seaver comes down from uh, the booth. I think he was one of the announcers during the uh, uh, the playoffs during that time, and he sits right next to me and he looks at me and he goes, "You're not going out there, are you?" And I said, well, would you? He goes, you don't want to take a risk with your arm. I said, Tom, I said, I'm going out there to celebrate with my teammates, man. And before I left that day, my wife looked at me and said, whatever you do, please don't do anything stupid if we win. (laughs) So the final out is made. And who's in the middle of the pile? but Dave Drevecki. And I was so excited for my guys, for my team, for the city. I was so fired up that I wanted to be out there celebrating. Even though I knew that I couldn't pitch and I had a broken arm, I wanted to celebrate. And I got into that pile and somebody hit me from behind. And two inches above the original break, 
my bone literally was a clean crack all the way through. So now I had a break above the break that was healing. And I was like, oh, I, I literally, Mark Baton looked at me, and in um, conversation, post-conversations, he said, Dave, you were, you were as white as a ghost when you got hit. And he said, I, when I saw that, I ran over and grabbed you almost did a face plant. And he grabbed me and walked me off the field and walked me into the uh, into the clubhouse and into the training room. And I was laying there. I was able to catch my breath, and I was able to kind of get my faculties back, and I was feeling so bad. I mean, I just felt horrible. You know, I, I shouldn't have gone out there. I would have been able to enjoy the celebration so much more. And I just felt really, really bad. And all of a sudden, Dr. Campbell came in to check up on me and see how I was doing. And I looked at him. I said, Doc, I said, look, with all I've been through, I know you're giving me some meds to ease the pain, but i got to have a glass of champagne with my guys. <laughs> Is it okay if I toast with them? He said, sure, Dave, go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so... I grabbed, I told one of the guys, go get a bottle of champagne, and, and we were in the training room, and I ended up, you know, toasting with a few guys there, and then kind of gingerly walked out into the clubhouse, if I recall, and toasted with some of the guys in there over the celebration, but yeah, that was a pretty embarrassing moment in the story, to be honest with you. I, um, looking back, that was just really stupid, and yet... You know, that was a left-handed moment, I guess I could say. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I I wonder, though, if there wasn't something serendipitous about it as well with, with eventually what came out of, you know, time with uh, doctors and examination because of that. So when, when, when that's yeah. all going down and you go back into the doctors, how, how did that all play out in, in finding that the, the cancer had returned? Yeah, that was um, actually a really interesting time because, you know, now I'm away from um, baseball and, and, and I've got this, again, another physical thing to have to work through. So that was that was weighing. You know, when I look back on it now, that was – it just got a little heavier, if that makes sense. And in the heaviness, seeing another doctor, seeing the doctor that actually did the surgery – an oncologist was a reminder that the cancer could potentially have come back. And in fact, that was the word they gave me when we did go back was that um, after some tests, some more tests, they were able to see that there was more cancer. And so, um, but there, they didn't notice that there was any activity growth taking place. And so uh, the doctor that did the initial surgery said he wanted to wait three months and come back and check me again. And then in, in the meantime, my wife got a call um, from her uh, first cousin, Mark, who is an um, oncologist and a liver specialist and is now the, uh, the head of MD Anderson Orlando. and um, Just a brilliant guy. And, and um, uh, anyway, being a part of the family, he called to check up on me and see how I was doing and wanted to know what the doctor said. And when Jan said they wanted us to wait three months, he said, look, I fellowshipped under Murray Brennan, one of the leading surgeons in the world um, in oncology at 
um, Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Center. I want you to go to see him for a second medical opinion, and it will be more than appropriate to do that. So we set that up, and when we saw Murray in uh, New York and Manhattan, he looked at me and he said, look, I'm going to evaluate the, uh, uh, the films that the Cleveland Clinic is sending, and I'll call you to let you know what I think needs to take place. And so he called us up, and he said, look, um, uh, they were recommending three months. He said, I really want you in here, um, not in months, but in weeks. And he said, to be honest with you, I'd prefer you to get here ASAP. And I said, well, I said, look, is it okay if we can get through the holidays? We're only maybe a month away from the holidays. He said, immediately after the holidays, get in here because we need to do surgery again. And I was like, okay. So got through the holidays, and in January of 1990, I uh, went to Sloan Kettering and had surgery to uh, remove more of the cancer um, that they had discovered in my arm and uh, to also go through, I think um, in that surgery we did brachytherapy too as well, which, uh, which was a form of uh, radiation treatments, but it was in seed implants. And so with the seed implants, I had to be put in isolation for five days and then I was able to go back home. And, uh, you know, and begin the rehab process. Um, but unfortunately, if I'm not mistaken, after that was when I contracted the staph infection. And I had a staph infection for 10 months. And I've got to tell you, that period of time was a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, just frustration and fear and anxiety, um, depression. Uh, anger, um, just a lot of stuff began to kind of come out um, with the prolonged nature of, you know, this journey that I was on. And um, unfortunately, um, when I contracted the staph infection um, and I went through that for 10 months, um, the doctors then became very concerned. And at that point, that's when they decided on June 18th of 1991 to remove my left arm and shoulder. And it was in that moment that I thought, okay, if we get rid of the arm, we get rid of the cancer, and I can get on with my life. You went in for surgery in October. What was that entire experience like? Holy, um, that experience was, um, it was really weird. It really was. Um, I uh, I have to tell you, I, I when I think about how weird that experience was, um, it's it's sometimes it's hard to even even, even talk about it because it, it in some respects um, didn't make any sense. I remember, and and here's why. I remember being in the room that night, and um, the doctors had come in and they brought in a consent form for me to sign and. And Dr. Brennan, who was going to perform the surgery, who was the chief of surgery at Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Center in, in Manhattan, um, wanted me to make sure that I was aware of everything and, and, um, and then signed the consent form. And I chose to do it with, um, with my right hand instead of my left hand. And in that moment, I thought, you know what, 
um, if there's a possibility that my arm will be amputated, then um, I need to start doing things with my uh, with my right hand. And so the next morning came, and my mom and dad were there, and Jan was there, and I was getting ready to uh, be wheeled out. They had transferred me from the uh, bed to the gurney that was going to take me to the re, uh, to the prepping room um, before surgery. And uh, I remember uh, laying on that gurney, and I was getting wheeled out, and they stopped, and, and I said goodbye to everybody. But then I have no idea why I did this, Mark, but I raised my left hand because I couldn't raise it on my own. And I waved goodbye to everybody in the room with my left hand. And I was, in essence, saying goodbye. My left hand was saying goodbye to everybody. And I wheeled down and went into surgery. And um, it was, yeah, that was just a, that was just a, a weird 48 hours, you know, and coming out of recovery and, you know, and just laying there. I, I chose not to look, which I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, I don't know why, but I just laid there. And then finally, when I was allowed to uh, get out of bed, um, I decided I was going to try and get out of bed on my own. <laughs> and I almost fell over. <laughs> and I leaned back against the bed, and um, I hit the button, and the nurse came running in, and she said, Dave, are you okay? And I said, well, I almost fell out of bed. She goes, what are you doing trying to get out of bed on your own? You call us first. You, you could have fallen on your side. You could have done so many things. She was like, don't you do that again. I said, I'm so sorry. So I said, but can I get out of bed? She goes, what do you want to get out of bed for? I said, because I want to see. I want to see. I want to go in the bathroom and look. And so um, all of a sudden I... I, ra- I, I waited for about 15 or 20 minutes to, for my head to get back together because it was really busy. And I pushed the button, and she came in, and I said, I'd like to be helped into the bathroom now. And uh, it was really interesting because she did that, and she left the room and left me standing. And I think she just stood outside the door because she knew I needed the privacy. Yep. And I'll met, you know, I don't share, you know, it's really weird. I don't share this with anybody. Mm-hmm. I stood there in front of the mirror and I just stared. And I kept on staring. And all of a sudden, for some reason, I just said, you know, God, if this is the deck of cards that I've been dealt, so be it. So be it. Because as I stared in the mirror, man, it wasn't just my arm that was gone. It was my shoulder. Everything was gone. Everything. And so, yeah, that was just that was just an amazing moment, an amazing moment for me. That when when it was time for the arm to come off, and I felt really good for about five days after maybe two weeks after the surgery. And then, okay, my wife just corrected me and said three. 
<laughs> so, so about three weeks after the surgery, and um, all of a sudden, everything just started crashing in. I went through an identity crisis. I was missing the game tremendously, the thing I loved so much. Um, I was in pain. Um, I was just, and, I, and all of a sudden, all these feelings and emotions that I did not know how to release and talk about um, came to the surface, and then I became verbally abusive and just started wearing out my wife and kids. And it was a really, really, really hard time, Mark, extremely difficult. You know, and obviously that impacted me emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, I was hurting on all fronts. And um, it was just a really dark time in our lives, really dark. And uh, I was asking a lot of questions about, you know, if this guy can't play baseball, then, then who is he and what's he worth? And that was a real, real struggle for me, real struggle. What got you out of it? Some wonderful, wonderful people um, and some great drugs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my wife and I, if my wife and I could, we'd have a dispenser of Prozac in our house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, uh, we were encouraged to, uh, um, to see some counselors. And so we started, we, we found a counselor in Cleveland, Ohio, which was only about an hour, hour and 15 minutes from our home in Youngstown, where we were, where we were planting roots and, and uh, living at the time. And uh, twice a week, we would drive to Cleveland for counseling sessions. And at first, get this, so here I am going through all my antics. And my wife has been crying out for help because she's been in a deep, deep, dark place for a really, really long time. And quite frankly, when I looked at her, she looked fine. And when I looked in the mirror, it was obvious there was something wrong with me. So I couldn't understand or figure out why she would have any problems. And yet she was in this deep, deep, dark place because she had just burnt out tremendously from all of this, from trying to care for me, respond to mail and all that stuff over those two and a half, three years. And it had finally just ended with her going into a deep, dark depression. And we were with some people that we trust and, and uh, respect. And they encouraged me to get Jan to counseling because she was physically ill. And, and it was a result of the clinical depression was a result of her just exhausting not only the serotonin in her system, but also the adrenaline that we're used as a, that's used as a backup when we do run through serotonin. And so... All of a sudden, um, I was being encouraged to get my wife to a counselor. And so I said, okay, we're going to go to a counselor. But remember, you're the one that's messed up, not me. I actually remember <laughs> saying those words, Mark. And so we go, and we're sitting there, and we're, we're probably, we probably go to about three weeks of sessions, maybe a month. And... Then, so, so then the amputation happens. That's when the amputation hits. And now I'm in the midst of this identity crisis, and we are in the middle of going to the counseling. And guess who ends up on the couch several weeks after the amputation? Me. Yeah. And, and the, beauty, the beauty of starting with Jan was I got the opportunity before my amputation to actually – 
listen to her in a neutral environment with somebody who cared deeply about us and wanted to help us and had the skills and talent to do it gave us the space for me to be able to listen to my wife communicate about her pain. And it was really the preparation for me to begin learning how to do that myself. Dave, my goodness. Um, we knew that this was going to be a journey. We said that right from the, uh, from the outset. And yeah. uh, normally, normally, as we sort of bring these to the to a close, I, I you know get kind of a, of a reflection on the uh, on the Giants organization and, and the experience that someone has had. But this is this is so much bigger than that, and has been so many more things than that. Uh, all I want to do is is just say uh, thank you, thank you for oh. opening up and allowing us into that story at at such a level. I appreciate that, my friend. Thank you for allowing me to spend this time with you. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's, been, it's actually been healing, um, being able to remember. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive conversations, subscribe to the Inside Giant Moments podcast, presented by T-Mobile, now. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.